Thank you for listening to one out of four experts. I'm Brutey the Dragon. Remember, these humans are not real experts. Enjoy the show. Welcome to One Out of Four Experts, the show where each week my co-hosts endeavor to bring you topics of interest, topics and subjects only a while ago we uh, knew basically nothing about. Each segment, one of the four of us will be your expert, and the others will just slip on a banana peel. Whoa! <clears throat> So you said I'm your, your Caitlin. Co- oh. I'm Josh. I'm Joel. I'm Chris. You said your co-hosts endeavor to bring you topics, but you didn't say what you do. Uh, no, I said co-host and I. No, you no, said you just didn't. co-hosts. I missed the I. Yeah, let's rewind and take a listen. Each week, my co-hosts endeavor to bring you topics of interest. <laughs> See. Oh, yeah. You know what? You are right, Chris. Yeah. Good Great. Can we get that in slow motion? You know what else I did? Absolutely. Each week, my co-host I also said, I said each week, and we don't do this each week anymore. I know. I, it's okay, though. But, uh, you know, each- They get it. So that's yeah. why you're a little rusty. So yeah. it's, it makes sense. Yeah. It makes was, sense. It's also it why you're crusty. Yeah. I am crusty, rusty, and I uh, was hoping that I would say each episode, which is what I've been trying to work on. Oh, yeah. That's all right, man. You're going <sighs> to nail it real Jesus. soon. Jesus. All right. So here we are. This is the show. This is the this is the podcast that we do every other week. You might as well turn it off now because you've heard it all. We ran out of topics and and subjects nope, too. We haven't done that. We've covered. We haven't covered everything yet. There's still things to cover. We were pretty close, though. I mean, in 40 episodes, is this 41 or 42? This is, this is 41. 41. We've so, done like probably 80 percent of all things. Yeah, pretty. That's pretty good. Who's yeah. keeping track of that? By the way, do we have? Like- I am. Uh, oh. Caitlin had a, a six points. Six points last time. That's, that's not really what I meant, but sure. I know you meant of all the topics that we've been doing. That's supposed to be my do- job, but I'm I've been slacking. I've been meaning to have a talk with me, and mm. I really think I just have not been up to snuff. And I think I'm going to have to let myself go. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we're all fired from whatever jobs we were supposed to be doing for this show. Yeah. So um, I'll see me in my office later. All right. <laughs> sounds sounds like a plan. Uh, speaking of Caitlin, Caitlin's going to do the topic because she won. Yeah, I'm very excited about this topic. I have no idea why I picked it. It just popped into my head one day and I learned so much about it. And I learned two really, really fun things that I hope you all enjoy as well. I love fun. So today, my unpopular opinion... <laughs> <laughs> this is the deadpan delivery, Chris. <laughs> um, I love fun. So I'll be talking about the humble tetrodontidae. You know, your pufferfish, puffers, balloonfish, blowfish, blowies, bubblefish, globefish, swellfish, toadfish, toadies, honey toads, sugar toads, Ooh. and sea squab. Can we go back to the balloonfish for yeah, a second? Yeah, you like that one? Does I that like the make this toads. a balloon talk <gasps> episode? Oh. Whoa, I hadn't even considered that. Yes. Fuck yeah. Can, 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 oh, I love wow. that music. Mm, gotta love it. What's this, what's this uh, episode's intro look like? Oh, so this one is just uh, a bunch of 
famous puffer fish from throughout cinema. Mrs. And Puff. Mrs. Puff. And then... The um, others. Well, the one from Finding Nemo. Uh, um, there's, like, probably lots of old Disney, you know, like, Steamboat Willie-type clips of, like, somebody blowing one up like a balloon. Yeah. You know? So, well, then you see that. And I'm just like... I'm just like, oh, oh, they're so cute. And then... Um, Aren't they like super poisonous, dude? Well, you you get kind of a point. They're a delicacy. Mark them down for kind of a point. Okay, he can have a full point because of the delicacy thing. They're not as poisonous as like they're kind of... They get a, uh, a rep for. Because they're toxic. Is it to rap eat, right? or rep? Like, do you get a bad rap or a bad rep? I think you can, you, technically both are correct, right? Okay. Yeah. So yeah. they get a bad rap for the poisonous thing. They they are, but like, they're the most poisonous to humans. And every other animal, it's like, just kind of, you're going to have a real bad day. Whatever. Yeah. And I'll get into that later. But yeah, so I was going to say, which name do you guys like the best? Because I'll just one. use that one for the rest of it. Okay. And then I'm going to regret this. But uh, is there any particular <laughs> accent that you envision the name said with? Please be kind. Wait, 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 wait. wait. So, <laughs> so what are we we're going with balloon fish? That's what Chris, that's what spoke okay, to Chris. Okay, that's what I chose. So wait, and it's not the whole topic. It's just like when I say the name. Scottish. Balloon okay. fish. <laughs> yep, I Balloon agree. fish. Wow, you like that? That's pretty good. Okay. That's really so, good. Um, yeah, I don't so, know if I'd be able to pull that out. Balloon fish <laughs> are species that belong to the family Tetrodontidae. Their scientific name refers to their signature four large teeth fused into an upper and lower plate, which are used to crush the shells of their enemies. <laughs> Badass. Um, crush the shells of what they eat, which are crustaceans and mollusks. And there are at least 200 different species of balloon fish they live in marine or brackish waters and brackish just means which i see that a lot i feel like i've used it in topics before even i have a question about brackish water Hell I, yeah. I, I don't want to derail anything but so brackish water isn't it where like salt water and fresh water meet usually it's, yes it's where because brown water and black water meet mm. <laughs> um <laughs> But <laughs> no points for that. That was nah. pretty good. So, Josh, kind of, it, it usually happens because all brackish means is that it's too salty to be considered fresh water and not salty enough to be straight up salt water. Okay. So it usually happens, yes, where it's it's unpotable. So is that the right? salt water yeah. is a spectrum. Exactly, just like f- everything. <laughs> So, um, so they mostly live in marine or brackish waters, but some balloon fish can also live in freshwater if they get out there for whatever reason. About 35 species live their entire lives in freshwater, which isn't a lot compared to the two over 200. So 35 live their entire lives in freshwater. And those are found in different tropical regions of South America, Africa, and Southeast Asia. So I'm sure you all know what their first and most important form of defense against predators is. Guns making themselves big. <gasps> Wrong, you puffer bitches. You walked right into my trap. I knew you were going to say that, you plebeian, predictable sea squabs. Okay. Pulling out so, the squabs term. Their most important and most often used line of defense is actually their excellent eyesight combined with short bursts of speed from their tail fin to evade predators. So they they move really slow, but their tail fin, which mostly is used as a rudder any other other time they move, any other, it's used <laughs> as a rudder any other time they move, um, but it can make this little short burst and it can spy like a really 
cool area <laughs> to, <laughs> to go like hide in or something. Um, <laughs> Does it do like a shoulder roll into it? Yeah, it has to be cool too. Yeah. Over the top of a sea anemone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're secondary defense mechanism and only used if they've unsuccessfully tried to evade the predator is that they infamously puff up in defense, spooking and in some cases fatally wounding their predators. The balloon fish have extremely elastic stomachs, which I didn't know this really. Um, they fill with either water or air, depending on where they're puffing. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if it, I didn't realize they filled with water. So like if you, I always assumed if you like slapped it, it would like, it would feel like there was air inside of it, but it, it would feel more like um, a water balloon. Yeah, a water balloon. Yeah, I guess that makes mm. sense. Because when you think about it, if it were already underwater, how would it puff up with air? Yeah, exactly. It can't just like generate a shitload of I gas know. in itself. What the fuck was I thinking? No, but I, like, I, never, I never thought that it would just fill up with water either. Yeah. But that makes way more sense. God, I'm stupid. How does it fill up with air ever? Sometimes they go near the surface. Or you, you, you can know? fish them. Like in the, the, yeah. uh, the intercoastal in Florida where my great-grandma yeah, used can to pull have a one, condo. You can pull one out of the water. And It'll still make puff it up. make it puff up. Yeah, yeah scare it's the gonna. Shit out yeah, of it. if you don't put it back in the water, it's gonna die just like any fish. But you know, any fish can breathe air for a little bit. Right. Right. So the they have extremely elastic stomachs, which they fill with either water or air. I already said that until it takes up most of their body and is very spherical in shape. They all have pointy spines that lie flat when they're deflated and then stick out dangerously when they're inflated. So the way it usually goes down, see, is that you'll try to eat it and the balloon fish will inflate and suddenly the thing that was halfway down your throat is several times larger than it just was and oh also bam there are spikes sticking through your throat so um predators either choke or if the balloon fish makes it to the predator's stomach, they release a neurotoxin called tetrodotoxin that will kill smaller predators, including humans, but most likely will just briefly inconvenience larger predators like sharks or, I don't know, big fish, stuff like that. Mm. Only only smaller, weaker predators like, like us. Like humans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the neurotoxin is stored in the balls. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's um, found primarily in their ovaries and liver. So females are more yes. poisonous. The ovaries are the balls of yeah, the female. Right? Basically. Exactly. So females are more poisonous. Uh, fuck you. And then this is really cool. Larval uh, balloon fish, their skin. So this is when they're in their larval state after their eggs have hatched. Their skin is covered in the same neurotoxin. So when predators try to eat them, they spit them out. Because it starts mm, to like... Tastes icky. Yeah. And so they just spit it right out. Spit out the little babies. And <laughs> <laughs> not all of them are necessarily poisonous. In fact, some species like the northern puffer found in North America, and that's what their name is, northern puffer, are they're a delicacy. Also, their level of toxicity varies from predator to predator. And then this is my favorite mini topic I've ever encountered. Oh. Okay. Dolphins have been observed expertly handling balloon fish amongst themselves in an apparent attempt to get high or enter a trance-like state. <laughs> so in an Such a dolphin move. Yes. In an extraordinary 2014 BBC One documentary show called Dolphins Spy in the Pod because they secretly filmed a pod of dolphins <laughs> with like <laughs> fake anemones and like uh, like 
other sea creatures Day and 39. Shit. No one can tell yeah. we're not dolphins. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Point for Josh. Um, so dolphins are shown gently passing the fish between them. Experts believe the creatures are using the toxins which emerge from the puffer fish as, sorry, which emerge from the balloon fish as part of its defense mechanism for their own enjoyment. These, these are quotes. They nudge the fish with their snouts and as the toxin is released into the water, they seem to lapse into a trance-like state. At one point, the dolphins are seen floating just underneath the water's surface, apparently mesmerized by their own reflections. Got <laughs> puffer, puffer, pass. Holy yes, shit. Yes, I was going to say that. Just point for Josh. Oh, <laughs> two points. So good. Because <laughs> I was literally going to say that in my topic. Um, Wait, so I get two points right yeah. there? Oh, shit. Another quote, the dolphins were filmed gently playing with the puffer, passing it between each other with kid gloves, so like very carefully, for 20 to 30 minutes at a time, unlike the fish they had just caught as prey, which they were sw- which were swiftly torn apart. So <laughs> yeah. like they had just fed and th- and they were like full and feeling good and then found this puffer fish and got high with it but like the they hand the fish that they just encountered like they ripped it apart and shared it amongst each other and then like with the fish cuz they don't want it to die they just want it to release and then when they're done they just like let it swim away. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the documentarians do note that this could have, because this is so rarely observed, um, this could have just been a one-off weird thing they happened to catch just one, one, one stoner weird-ass stoner <laughs> pot of dolphins doing. But like, I don't know, that maybe happens all the time. I wouldn't doubt it. And we don't really know what was going on, but these these particular scientists think that's what was going on. So, um, these secondary defense mechanisms are to counteract the balloon fish's naturally slow movement. Like I said earlier, their tailfin can deliver a sudden short burst of speed, but mostly just acts like a rudder. And then it uses a combination of little tiny, so these are all very small, um, pectoral, dorsal, anal, that's what they're called, and caudal look at me? <laughs> fins <laughs> to maneuver around. Um, which the way it was described in all of the sources, uh, the way they use all their little tiny fins made me think of like trying to play Quop or Octodad or something <laughs> where it's just like ve- the whole thing is about like just trying to move around (laughs) they can move their eyes independently and many species can change their color pattern depending on their environment just like chameleons oh yeah that's Mm. very chameleon-esque yeah a balloon fish's diet varies depending on its environment typically most of what they consume is algae and small invertebrates and they can survive on a completely vegetarian diet if their environment's lacking um, meat resources but they They prefer an omnivorous food selection. Larger species are able to use their beak-like front teeth to break open clams, mussels, as well as other shellfish. Marine balloon fish live much of their life out in the open ocean and reproduce when they encounter other females. The eggs are spherical and buoyant and hatch after four days. Once they're hatched, they have a functional mouth and eyes and must eat within a few days. It's a quick turnaround for a baby. Yeah, four days with functioning eyes also. Yeah. I can get you a baby in four days, tops. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Reproduction in freshwater species varies quite a bit. They have much more nuanced courtship rituals. For example, dwarf puffers court with males following, uh, the way they court is males follow the females 
males and display their colorful crests unique to their subgroup of species. After the female accepts his advances, she will lead the male into plants or another form of cover where she can release eggs for fertilization. And then the male can help her by like rubbing against her side. And that's just like one example of the particular mating ritual of one species. It's pretty modest for a a wild fish. Yeah. Yeah. So because many marine balloon fish live the majority of their lives out in the open ocean, it's a little difficult to study them. So we don't know a ton more specific stuff about their reproductive behaviors. But there is one more really fucking cool thing we know about their mating rituals. And you may have seen or heard about this one. Underwater crop circles. So we didn't even notice these before 1995. And then divers off the coast of Japan spotted these mysterious, ornate, almost mandala-esque symmetrical circles in the middle of the ocean floor. There's like a viral video that went around of like these divers finding them. um, And you should look them up immediately. Uh, They're also decorated with various shells as if carefully placed at various places along the pattern. That's crazy. So it took almost, and they're perfectly circular and symmetrical. It took almost a decade then to figure out that it was a male balloon fish creating them as a mating display. So what they do is they flap their little fins and scoot along the ocean floor in a circle to disrupt the sediment. And they create circular ridges in a pattern when they do so. What is remarkable is how laborious of an undertaking it is. The males are only about 12 centimeters long and they create circular works of art that are two meters in diameter. Wow. So, and it gets fucking crazier. Then they place decorations like shells along the tops of the ridges to entice females. Then females were observed inspecting the displays, and if they liked them, they'd mate. It's tough to say what specifically entices the females. So weird. I mean, they um, have really good eyesight, like you said, so yes. maybe they're just like art appreciators? Maybe. Like, a, what the yeah. fuck? So these displays take seven to nine days to construct. And this is underwater. So currents often ruin what they've worked on. So they're constantly working against time to begin and finish one before it gets swept away. It's literally like creating a mandala and it, it, you know, it just... That's it's like part of the process. These displays are similar to bowers. It's a term used to describe constructions built by various uh, like terrestrial animals, Mm. including uh, the eponymous bowerbird. So a bowerbird makes is is famous for creating a a very symmetrical, concentric um, display for its mates. We don't really know exactly why they make them other than it does appear to attract mates. Some scientists believe that the main reason they do it at all is really for the particular sediment that the process digs up and it ends up in the center of this circular thing. So like the sediment in the center is where the females like to lay their eggs. So it may just be a way to get that good, good shit together for her in the center. And I don't know, maybe it is also because it, it looks, you know, pee dope. Yeah, because why else would they put like shells and stuff? Yeah. Oh, maybe it's like a, maybe it's like a defensive thing for, for like bottom feeder. Type. Yeah, maybe it, to scare away the eggs that inevitably get laid in the center. Who knows? Um, mm. But she checks it out and possibly to see like, is this a good place where I want to lay my brood? Ugh. And um, she shits eggs. <laughs> so, yeah, they're just very, very, very cool creatures. And I completely fell in love with them. I always really liked looking at them, but now I feel bad because I usually looked at them in captivity. So, I don't know. But I love them. 
Balloon Fish. Water experts. <laughs> All right, we're back. I just popped a hard candy in my mouth. I'm gonna take a, a bite out of it without even, without even letting it dissolve any. We're gonna see what it sounds like, and then hopefully I don't have to go to the dentist after, and we can just listen to Josh do his topic. All right, Josh, take it away. That sounded pretty great. Well, I'm not done. Ooh, what you chomping on? Is it a, a, a Werther's original? It is a Werther's original, but you can see it, so you don't get a point for it. That's okay. I wasn't look fishing for one. I wanted the the listeners to know. No, now Joel wants one. Hold on, we might have to make this its own little segment before Josh goes. All right, everyone, everyone, grab grab your Werthers, yes. grab your bits. Come on, tiny arms. I was like, why wasn't I doing this into the microphone? Scrap <laughs> your Werther's! It's going to be an awkward segment, Josh. <laughs> All right, has everyone got your Werther's? Wait, do it, does it need to be in our mouths? Yeah, you have uh, to have the Werther's in your mouths. Yeah. If I had a nickel for every time I've said that. You'd have at least a nickel. Have they all been engaged? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, have you guys ever encountered a problem? Where your efforts to fix the problem just made the problem worse. And oh, then and yeah. then and then you also just end up with a bunch of cobras. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Does it have to be specifically cobras or just a bunch of snakes? Because yes. <laughs> Is it specifically it, cobras? Okay, then no. Like that time when I had a pest and I tried to get rid of it by getting cobras and then they became friends and I had two pests. Kind of. Yeah. That's that that's almost it is that it uh, i'm gonna give you a point yeah. anyway it's close enough <laughs> this is gonna be like your snail topic where they get snails to eat more snails and then they not exactly but it's a, a more generalized version of that so i'm going to talk about the cobra effect okay have you guys ever heard of the cobra effect no no all right so but i like effects so I do like, like a good effect, yeah <laughs> So the cobra effect occurs when, simply put, the attempted solution to a problem makes a problem worse. Oh my god, I love that. Yeah, so it's kind of like the Streisand effect, but... No. <laughs> no, I mean, it kind of is. Where oh. I mean, in her case, what happened with her is an example of the cobra effect, almost. Oh, okay. Where she didn't want people to know where her house was, and then by making a very oh. public lawsuit about it, yeah, okay, hundreds you're of right. thousands of people like knew where her Beyonce house was. Beyonce that one time. Yeah, that kind of yeah. stuff. Mm. But the name originates from an incident in India back when it was ruled by the British. The city of Delhi had a serious cobra problem, and in an attempt to cut back on the cobra population, the British government placed a bounty on cobras. So there were lots of little cash for cobra joints that started <laughs> popping up. So you and your buddies would go out every night hunting cobras, and you'd usually sack a couple of those wiggly suckers, and it was at least enough to earn yourselves a chill sesh at the local hookah lounge. Yo, I... That resonates. I've I've sacked a snake before. Yeah, you have. You used to sack a shitload I, of snakes. Yeah. You know what? Caitlin gets a point Thank on you. behalf of all the snakes which were sacked. Thank you. And you know what? Give my dad a point because he had to like take oh, care of the sacked snakes. Steve. Oh man. Steve sacked gets snake a point. Steve is what we call them. <laughs> That's what we call them. Steve gets Steve a point. Point, point, point. And it's not the other Steve that was on this show. He's. We don't oh, talk yeah, about no, him. not that Steve. Please put I'm that voice back. away. Put it away. No, 
Oh, Steve, get out of here. Steve, Steve, get out of here. All right, I'm cutting that off. Uh, So one night after wrangling a bunch of cobras with the boys, you have a great idea. Instead of slinking around town like a bunch of idiots every night, constantly getting bit up by street cobras, why don't you just capture a bunch of cobras and breed them for infinite cobras, which translates to infinite cash. Because if you bring the Brits a dead cobra, you get some money. That is very smart. This is very... It's kind of sad for the cobra. I don't like that. Who cares? Yeah. Money! Money! This whole idea is like an Ouroboros. Do I get a point for that? Were you going to mention that? No, I wasn't going to oh, mention okay. that, but I'll give you a, I'll give you a point, because okay. Ouroboros is a cool thing. I know you like those. <laughs> so you and your buddies all get super into cobra breeding, and by extension, you also get into systematically killing cobras. So you guys are getting rich, and you notice a huge boost in self-confidence, and you think you might even have a shot at that super cute waitress at the hookah lounge you know the one with those disfiguring scars and that profound limp you think she smiled at you last time you were there but it may have just been those scars either way life is good and the scheme worked for a little bit but the british government became hip to what you and the boys were into and they shut down the compensation program the cobra bounty was over so now you have a bunch of worthless cobras shitting all over the house and your mom is like you gotta get these fucking cobras out of this house right now and you're left with no choice but to dump all your cobras out the window and let them roam freely in the streets and all your boys had to dump their cobras too so a shitload of super horny cobras were released into the streets that night why did the lady have scars all over her face who knows (laughs) not important (laughs) You want to know how she got those scars. (laughs) So long story short, even though I just told the long story, as a result of the Cobra bounty, the Cobra population exploded. Thus, the Cobra effect was born. So that's where the name comes from. So I'm going to also talk about a few similar events or events that had similar outcomes, rather, that occurred throughout history in different parts of the world. So in 1902... In Hanoi, Vietnam, the ruling French government put out a bounty on rats in an attempt to control the rat population, and they required a severed rat tail as proof of a kill. So, after a bit, colonial officials began noticing rats running around town that didn't have tails. (laughs) Turns out people were capturing rats and just cutting off their tails and then releasing them so they could go and make more rats. So... Predictably, yeah, get more tails. So there were just a shitload more rats all around. It was a it was a a net loss. In 1958, in China, Mao Zedong began implementing the Great Leap Forward, and part of that was something known as the Four Pests Campaign. Anyone heard of that? No. Four Pest Campaign. So the goal of the campaign was to completely eliminate the four biggest pests responsible for disease and crop Mm. shortages. Humans, 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 and humans. (laughs) (laughs) Chris gets a point. In that case, they did a great job at eliminating that pest. You'll find out in just a minute. But rats, flies, mosquitoes, and sparrows. Ooh. Ooh, That last one was a sleeper pick, right? So while rats and flies and mosquitoes commonly spread diseases, sparrows ate seeds and grains, and they drastically reduced China's food supply. But they also eat bugs, right? Joel gets a point, because Joel sees where this is going. 
So people started killing as many sparrows as they possibly could, and they killed a shitload of sparrows. They were much easier to lure and manipulate than, like, mosquitoes. The mosquitoes probably skyrocketed because of it, right? Uh, not quite. Well, I mean, maybe, uh, but the locusts. The oh, locusts oh, were yeah, the big problem. Gotta worry about. So yeah, after yeah, a couple... Yeah, this is all very biblical. Oh yeah, for sure. Like, this is kind of like the Dust Bowl. It was just a man-made plague of biblical proportions. Jeez. But after a couple years, the sparrows were hunted almost to extinction, and as a result, insect populations exploded, and they had swarms of locusts, which absolutely decimated crops to extremely low yields, and these actions largely contributed to the Great Chinese Famine, between 1959 and 1961, where between 15 and 45 million people starved to death. Bummer. I can't fathom that. That's like, I can't. fucking bonkers. That's so many people. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, Chris, you were joking about humans being the pest. Well, they really got the short straw yeah, there. Yeah, Chris. I, mean, I don't know. We kind of deserve it. you, Chris. <laughs> we do, we, yeah. We totally deserve it. Yeah. Maybe not those specific people at that time, but now. In 2005, the UN attempted to entice companies to responsibly dispose of the greenhound gas. Oh my God, greenhouse gas. <laughs> Let me just start that over. Greenhound gang. So there are also. <laughs> greenhound gang. <laughs> so there- I was thinking more like a rapper's delight kind of thing. Oh. We're the greenhound gang. <laughs> yes. Dum, dum. So there are also economic equivalents to the Cobra effect. So in 2005, the UN attempted to entice companies to responsibly dispose of the greenhouse gas HFC-23, which is a byproduct of a common coolant. And they were enticing companies by offering them carbon credits, which could later turn into actual money. Unfortunately, some companies started purposely increasing production of the coolant, thereby increasing the output of HFC-23 to dispose, leading to a bunch of carbon credits, which turned into a ton of cash. So the program was suspended in 2013 since it was being used to increase the production of the thing it was supposed to restrict. That's bad. Yeah. Chris gets a point. Thanks. I feel like incentivizing things like that is is not how to do. I mean, it's, it's an argument for regulation, right? Like yes. it's an interesting argument for regulation. It's, like, um, um, the capitalist, the capitalist ideal of being like, here's a bunch of money to do the thing I want you to do. It doesn't usually work. The other term for it is perverse incentive. I love it. In a more morbid version of the Cobra effect or perverse incentive, let's check out the Congo Free State. So the Congo Free State was an African state ruled by Belgium from 1885 to 1908. It was ruled by this fuckhead Leopold II. Oh, don't have that name around me. Yeah, well, (laughs) he was king at the time, and he was a giant dickhead, and he enslaved practically everybody who lived there and forced them to harvest rubber. And he had very insane quotas that he put in place, and failure to meet those quotas was punishable by death. And what better way to prove you killed somebody than by severing and delivering their right hand as proof of a kill? Uh, I don't know. Maybe their head, their heart, their brain, their yeah, lungs, their sure. anus. Yeah. Um, what was that last one? Their lungs. Thanks. 
So instead of attempting to harvest more rubber, which was literally impossible, people started legit hunting other people down just to cut off their hands to save their own lives. So there was a sort of hand economy that was born to satisfy the super fucked up king that was Leopold II. And villages were raided and battles were fought between natives just to keep a steady supply of severed hands going. And it was horrifically brutal, and it's estimated that more than 10 million people died during Leopold II's rule. Like, that's crazy! That's, that's a so crazy amount! Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That is crazy, and uh, I have a question. Excuse me if this is insensitive, but if you got your hand cut off, you were good, right? Not like you, always. You, like you're just like you were a ghost then. You're just like out in dodgeball, and I you can just kind of so, watch Chris. from the sides. No, mm-hmm. because you got two hands, and like, yeah, they say a severed right hand is, but you they, know, they proof they took of the kill. left hands. Yeah, That's... it was really fucked. And if if you know, getting your hand cut off, the resulting infections from just having that done to you in a non-surgical way. Uh, if that didn't kill you, then you were just like maimed for the rest of your life. And that was a bummer. That was recent enough that there's photographic evidence and documentation of what was happening in that area of the world oh, at no, that time. I don't like that. So there are lots of pictures of people just like displaying no, their hands no. that were cut off. Did you? And they were all children mostly. Josh, did you look at those? I fucking had to. No, no I had one to take made one you for the team. <laughs> I had to look at lots of pictures for research too and yeah, it was you're talking, dolphins getting high. Well, you, before you were talking about morbid curiosity, oh, this yeah. was a genocidal event that occurred and I didn't know about it so I got a little curious and I learned and no, it made I've been Belgium look bad yeah oh no yeah because it was a belgian king they weren't all central european everything is great all the time they were over there killing 10 million african people for rubber well that's a bad look belgium that's a bad look (laughs) belgium loses a point yeah okay yeah so uh another kind of example i guess of like an economic cobra effect uh it was like in 1976 venezuela's government took over the oil industry and that worked for a while but then oil production fell and then prices fell and then inflation kicked in big time because the currency was tied to the production of oil which is not smart and yeah then their currency became practically worthless Mm. and uh the outcome couldn't have been more opposite from the intent so that was a bad time. But have you guys ever personally experienced something like that, even on a small scale? Because I do have a personal anecdote. But I if I hear thought from about it, first. I probably could. But like, yeah, I don't think I, don't I could know. come up yeah, with them right, right, now, right off like, the dome. It's all right, well, like they I'll, happen all the time at work, though. Like, I'll go first. I'll go first then. And if you guys think of one, you'd let me know. But one time when I was a freshman in college, I had a big gallon jug of Arizona iced tea. Chris knows the ones. Yeah. And I must have perched it in a way that gravity took the wheel and this thing just hit the floor and the cap split open and everything. And I had like a half gallon of the stuff all over the place. And uh, I didn't have any paper towels. I had only single ply toilet paper. No. Yeah. So I started unraveling an environmentally impactful amount of toilet paper onto the floor. But single-ply toilet paper does not absorb 
well. Oh, we all know that. Yeah. So <laughs> as soon as it hits liquid, it starts breaking apart instead of actually absorbing fluid. And like, in fairness, it's not meant to absorb no. a half gallon of Arizona iced tea. <laughs> so yeah, it just all I had was a puddle of shredded paper and Arizona on the floor. That should be the standard that we hold all toilet papers to. I don't remember how like the outcome of that though you don't remember how the outcome of that though yeah i don't i don't remember how the outcome of that went huh. happened did yeah i mean uh, the things that immediately came to mind with with the um cobra effect is like i don't know clogging toilets you know yeah that's a pretty good one the the thing with your mom and the snakes is like a very very literal kind of cobra <laughs> oh, effect yeah, story wait. We have to tell that. Oh my God, we have to. Okay. This is, yeah. Oh, I can't believe I didn't think of that. I went, my mind went immediately to poop like it always does. So, um. Is this what you were referencing in the beginning of this topic that I didn't understand? Okay. Yes. So I'll tell the abridged version. So I grew up in Minnesota for five years in a house that the foundation was built on a garter snake nest. And so it was infested with snakes and there were snakes everywhere. I don't mean like the floor of the, you know, temple in where the Ark of the Covenant is in Indiana Jones, but like, so it wasn't move up, like the floor wasn't moving with snakes, but you'd see a couple snakes every day inside the house. Mm -hmm. Outside, forget about it. It was, they were everywhere, (laughs) everywhere. So I didn't mind it because I was little and my brother was even younger. So we grew up with them and we liked them a lot. So we would like catch them and put them in, in a, a bucket or, or whatever. And then my dad would like get rid of them. And I was lied to about how he got rid of them because oh. remember I liked the snakes and right. he was not, he was definitely murdering them. <laughs> um, there was a snake genocide that oh, occurred. God. Yeah. So uh, my mom, though, my my poor mother, has like a, a phobia of snakes. She was terrified of them. And like that must have been horrible to live there for five years. But it was a beautiful house. And like we loved our neighbors. It was a great place except for the snakes. And <laughs> That is a ridiculous statement. <laughs> I know. Except for the house was, was full of so snakes. It was so good. There were like deer in our backyard every night and bunnies. And it Just was awesome. The snakes. And so this is the story that she tells, at least, that she saw a therapist to combat, you know, this phobia. And the therapist was like, maybe to, you know, prove to yourself that like you have control over them. They can't hurt you. You can hurt them. Kill one next time you you see one and see how that makes you feel. It might be a good next step. So she opens the door into the garage one day and there's a big fat one laying in the middle of the garage. So my mom freaks out, composes herself, grabs a shovel, big, big, big shovel, like takes it back, reels it back and brings it right down halfway through the big snake. And then we learned that day that um, garter snakes are actually one of the only species on the planet of snake that bear live young instead of laying eggs. They don't lay eggs. They are full of snakes. It's a snake full of snakes. So the reason why this snake was so big and fat was because it was pregnant. And so when my mom brought the shovel, brought the hammer down, like tiny baby snakes just spilled out of it, spewed out of it all over her shoes, all over the garage, and just set her back in therapy just years. (laughs) That's horrifying. Yep, that's... that's, (laughs) Cobra effect. 
That's the worst. Just crazy town. Okay. Good stuff. That cobra effect will get you. It's my favorite story I have. <laughs> Subscribe to One Out of Four Experts and follow them on the I Am a Dragon. Experts. All right. More candy. I see how this well, is. Now that I'm done with my topic, I'm on the Werther's train. He's got five Werther's in his mouth right now. <laughs> Breathing is labored. Good thing I don't have to talk a lot. You know who does? Shut up, Droopy. You had your turn. Joel. Slather me with knowledge. Yo, that is on point, Josh. You get a point for that intro because guess what, guys? Mayonnaise? (laughs) No. (laughs) Good guess, though. Peanut butter? Ooh, half of the equation. (gasps) Peanut butter and jelly. Butter. No. No. Chris gets a point, but it's not peanut butter and jelly. Oh, I was going to do peanut butter and jelly the week I did it's, macaroni and That'd be good. Instead. That'd be good. Hang on to that one. That's pretty good. Guys, this might be the most important subject we've ever covered. I'm going to talk about the differences between jam, jelly, compote, preserves, and conserves. Cool. Okay. I would like to know this. So yeah, me too. It kind of, it's kind of like, I'm going to say it builds on Chris's pickle topic because it's, it has to do with how people preserve food. So this one is, uh, I got a shout out to SeriousEats.com for this lovely article on all the different ways to preserve fruit. We all know that uh, back before refrigeration and global food markets, folks needed a way to keep food from going bad in the warmer and colder months of the uh, of the year. So, you know, they, they did things like pickling, but pickling doesn't always work because you can't just always make something salty and vinegary because, <laughs> you know, sometimes you well, might have... I oh, disagree, yeah, so... me too. Why not? Why can't you do yeah. that? Okay, all right, that's fair. <laughs> Usually you can get a sweet and salty thing going on and it's great, but th- sometimes you want something that's just sweet, right? Mm. I feel like I make... Weird jellies like that in um, Stardew Valley. You can. Oh, yeah. So, like, yeah. pop, like pepper jelly is really good. Ooh, yeah. yeah. There are some savory jelly. Okay. All right. Fine. <laughs> but I'm just saying that you got a good, good strawberry thing going. You're not going to throw a bunch of, like, vinegar in it. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, although balsamic and strawberry is, like, a great thing. So, yeah. all right. Also, whatever. Uh, balsamic <laughs> and ice topic. cream. Oh, yeah. Balsamic vinegar and strawberries on top of vanilla ice, ice cream. Balsamic yeah. vinegar Ooh, is, like, yeah. an exception to the rule. All right. We're not going to get into that. So, for most fruit, it's it's a sugar-based preserve that you want. And preserve is used actually as a blanket term for any sugar-based fruit-saving technique. It can also be used to describe one specific option that I'm going to get into in a minute. So this time around, I want to give you all like this this great crash course on, on these hey, Joel, different products. Yeah. I have a question. So, and I'm just using your words. I don't like the sound You of this. compared this to um, Chris's topic, pickles. Um, when Chris did his topic, he, he gave us pickles to right. consume. I don't have any, oh. any <laughs> preserves or conserves for you. I'm sorry. But do, do you, does anybody know the difference between jam and jelly? Let's I start feel like it yes. has to do with chunkification. <laughs> Uh, I guess actually I know a very very lewd joke about the difference between jam and jam (laughs) (laughs) okay tell it it. can I tell it (laughs) 
I know two different ways of telling it. Okay, I'll, wait. I'll, how about how about this? We'll put the joke at the very end of the episode. Ooh, that's a good idea. So that, that is going to people that want to. It is inappropriate. It. it is highly inappropriate, and all of our moms needs a can, trigger warning. Can turn off the episode before right. the stinger. Exactly. Josh. That works. So if anybody doesn't know, we do at the end of the episode, the theme finishes, and there's a little thing. And, yeah, and and it's usually a funny little thing. But this week it will be. It'll be dirty AF. Yeah, it will be unacceptable. (laughs) (laughs) Please stand by. But seriously, though, what is the difference between between peanut butter? Nope. Jelly and jam. What is it? What what is the the factual difference? Um, Does jam have uh, fruit on the bottom like yogurt? Kind of, okay. you get a, you get a half a point for that. Okay, something yeah, like yeah. There's like pureed fruit in one, and the other has seeds. Okay, nope. <laughs> the other one is just is just uh, it's like Jello basically. I'm gonna give Josh a point for pureed fruit. Oh, and Chris gets a point for like Jello. Which one's like Jello? Jelly. Thank you. So let let's talk about this. So jelly is is strained. Jelly is strained. So we're all strange jelly. Get in line. Yeah, it leaves like just a translucent jelly behind. Uh, it doesn't have any fruit solids in it. It's basically just fruit juice and sugar and pectin. And pectin is kind of like the foundation of for all life. These no <laughs> oh gelatinous fruity spreads. Well, that's not what I heard. Okay, well. <laughs> Don't go eating pectin, all right? <laughs> Don't go eating pectin. Jesus, <laughs> off the fucking rails. Uh, so, so I want to cover each of uh, the unique options of uh, preserving fruit and sugar. Uh, we're going to start with um, with uh, how it all kind of works. You need three and possibly four ingredients to make it uh, an interesting product. So the whole business is about fruit, and you have to pick the right fruit. For the job, preserves are made from just ripe and under ripened fruit. So, an over ripened fruit can actually contribute to like a poor flavor or bad texture in a preserve. Huh. Which ones do berries make the best ones? No. The easiest? So, actually, things like apples and, and, well, you'll, we'll get into this, but fruit with a high level of pectin makes the best ones. Oh, yeah. And apples do. Um, yeah, you're right. They have like, yeah, some of the highest. So, another component. Oh, peaches too. Yep, that's that's true. Yes, uh, you get a point. Sure. No, I don't. <laughs> uh, another component Please is sugar. Don't. Sugar is one of the the two major magic components of this of this process. So preserving fruit requires sugar, and uh, sugar is hydroscopic. Let me know what hydroscopic means. Tiny and underwater. Nope. <laughs> Good try, though. Very good try. It's like, it's so Give good. Give her a point for that. But. She can, all right. There's another point for Caitlin. She's just cleaning up. But uh, so it basically means that it, it sucks up water on like a molecular level. It absorbs water. The less water in your fruit means it's less hospitable for microbial life. Uh, so that's how it's preserved. So the higher the sugar content, the less perishable the product can be. Salt works in a very similar way, but sugar works best for fruit because it has the side effect of being super sweet and tasty. And that's what you want your jam to taste like most of the time. The other magic piece of this puzzle is pectin. 
pectin, which we talked about earlier. Pectin is actually a carbohydrate, and it occurs naturally in all kinds of things, especially fruit. And this is what makes jelly thick with two C's. Uh, <laughs> the trick is it needs heat and acid to do this chemical thing that it does. And uh, most fruit have varying amounts of pectin, but apples uh, usually have the most, along with uh, a few other fruits that usually have enough natural pectin that you can make a well-textured preserve without adding any additional pectin. But some, like berries, most berries, you have to add additional pectin. And the way that you do that is you can buy powdered pectin, and it actually comes from apples. So they make powdered pectin from apples, and then you can... Everything you're always eating apple jam yeah, a lot of the or time. jelly or whatever. No Honestly, matter what. they isolate the pectin. It's not it it doesn't have any apple left in there. Oh, it's okay. just a carbohydrate extracted from the from the those uh, those round boys. So the fourth and final component is actually the acid component. And it, it doesn't have to be added because a lot of fruit produces its own acid, but you, you can add like a little lemon or vinegar to a preserve and it helps to achieve a much better texture it makes the pectin thicker i guess uh correct yes for all you number nerds out there the ideal ph for your preserve is going to be between 2.8 and 3.5 where's that where's that put it right about orange juice okay now for the fun part preserves jams jellies conserves and compotes what the fuck and why? <laughs> so, Compotes is when you uh, mm. take the remnants of like your food and oh yeah. Um, so stuff. you're thinking of compost? Oh, <laughs> not quite. Good try though. So, as I said before, a preserve is kind of a blanket term, but it can also refer specifically to a whole preserved fruit or basically a jam that has like uniform chunks of fruit in it. And uh, we haven't really talked about jams yet, but you'll know what I mean in a minute. So, preserves don't have to even include pectin at all. It's kind of just like you can put, chop up some fruit, put it in a jar with like water or just its own juice, and that's a, that's a preserve. The word jam, it is the most heavily regulated of these these things. It's um, a schedule three controlled yeah. substance. <laughs> yeah, it's like it has a bunch of rules from the FDA. But jams are fruit that have been crushed or chopped and cooked with sugar. So specifically not whole pieces of fruit is what makes it jam separate from like it's just a preserve. But it's still got pulp and like junk in the mix that make it not jelly. So uh, jams are usually cooked until uh, they are spreadable. And um, the FDA allows you to call it jam if you're starting with berries, tomatoes, oranges, or pineapples. The ratio must be 47 parts by weight fruit to 55 parts sugar. What do you use tomato jam for? I don't know. Spaghetti. No, it's they actually call a sweet it jam, sauce. which is kind of weird. Oh. Uh, if you're Because it has to have 55 parts of sugar. Oh. If you're starting with stone fruit, currants, guava or gooseberries the ratio must be 45 parts fruit 55 parts sugar and it must have no less than 65 percent soluble solids and soluble solids are just it's it's another way to say sugar basically Mm -hmm. it's like sugar is is almost 100 percent of the soluble solids in a mixture Mm. so as i said before jelly is just a strange jam uh, strain strange jam. jam strained <laughs> it's not well it is kind of weird yeah so you strain your jelly <laughs> sorry you strain your jam through a jelly bag 
Oh, come on. Yep. And then you're left with jelly. And the government regulation states that jelly must contain at least 55% fruit juice. So, my personal favorite is uh, the conserve. So, a conserve. I haven't really heard that one. Conserve is just a jam, but it's made from like a mixture of fruit. So, if it's more than one fruit, it's a conserve. It yeah, I'm down conserve. with that. I'm down with that. So hey, like, can you tell me what Marmite is? That's a vegetable-based thing. It's not fruit. Okay. It's kind of like Vegemite. Yeah, what's that? It's it's <laughs> it's a real gnarly vegetable mixture that they preserve. Like It's vegetable mud. Kind of like, <laughs> we, when we talked about compost, it's yeah. kind of like that. Oh. <laughs> oh. But you spread it on toast. So, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm sorry for asking. I just thought it might I, be honestly, related. It's not, in, it's not in here. I no. thought it might be sorry. its like third cousin or something. I didn't, didn't we, got, we got vegetable mud out of it. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's great. So Joel some, gets a point for vegetable how mud. How about I like... I like that for the name of an episode. We got vegetable mud out of it. <laughs> so conserves. Mixed berries, my favorite, but there's a whole bunch of really good ones. Sometimes folks even throw in some dried fruit and nuts for texture, but I'd rather they didn't. <laughs> we got, so, so the next thing is, is compotes, right? So compotes. How do you spell that? C-O-M-P-O-T-E-S. Uh, compotes, yes. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, that would be plural. Uh, so it's it's like a quick, thinner jam that you use as a sauce. So it's actually like when you're using a jam as a sauce, it's, it's a compote now. Mm, okay. <laughs> you're going to put it on your pies. You're going to put it on your cake. You're going to put it on your pancakes or mm. whatever. You make a dish and... The chef will be like, oh, let me make a quick compote over here and we'll add some fun, you know, it'll be a fruity delight to put on top of whatever your cheesecake or what, you know. Ooh, um, that sounds really good. Yeah, it's delicious. Compote's great. And it's usually thinner. It doesn't have as much pectin in it. And it's made with sugar syrup usually and not like just sugar. I don't know. There's some there's some cooking shit that happens to make it a compote. Just to, to, to wrap up the topic here, we're going to mention marmalade. So marmalades are basically just like a more acidic jam. It's usually made from citrus fruits and, and it, it often uses honey instead of sugar because it actually comes from the Greek melom, uh, meli, meli melon, meli melon, 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 melon. So it's a Greek word. I don't know how to say M-E-L-I-M-E-L-O-N. So it's referring to quince, which is stored in honey. And that's, that's the Greek word that, that kind of comes from, that's how marmalade happened. But uh, th- that it's, it's good. I like marmalade a lot. Y'all like marmalade? Yeah, marmalade's good. I don't it's, know it's got, like, that candy. I've had it. it has rind in it. That's the big then thing. Then I don't think I've had it. Usually it's orange-based. Orange marmalade is the most famous. Yeah, but you know what? I know and deep inside my soul is that I would like it if I tried it. So I can already just good. say I like good, it. Good, good, good. So the one last thing is fruit butter. Is anybody familiar? Yeah, I've, I've had apple, apple butter. butter. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, apple butter is probably the most common because it has the highest level of pectin. And this is this is a, a kind of like a jam. You start out with the process of jam. You add a bunch of sugar, you add your fruit. You don't add any additional pectin and you overcook it. And mm. then you get butter. What, mm. How do you eat it? Put it on pancakes. Spread it on anything. Okay, yeah. Put it on literally I didn't anything. like have it growing up. And so I always think of it, it's something that I only ever have at like other people's 
you know, houses and stuff. So I always think of it as something that like is not for me, but there's no reason I'm a grown ass woman. There's no reason why I can't go to the store and buy myself some apple butter, like a little butter bitch. Your friend's mom that's into holistic medicine has a glass (laughs) jar of apple butter in the fridge. And like your snack was a, was a slice of toast with apple butter smeared on it. And you're like, this is for when I get to go to other people's houses. Yeah. Good. That sounds really good, though. Yeah, I mean, it, usually it's just like you need fruit with less moisture, and it, and you just overcook the shit out of it until it's a butter. Badass. Yep. You gelling, Chris? I'm gelling like a felon. Oh, nice. Experts. Chris. Hey, buddy. You are. <laughs> you remind me right now of a an American flag. Because you're wearing the colors of an American flag. So, How many Chris, times is the way I dress going to come, oh, come into... Because you always dress so sharp and snazzy. Like flags. Yeah. He's always wearing those flags. You're shirts. always so sharply dressed. That's why. Well, you know what? It's like, don't you think John Mulaney got... Didn't people remark upon his, you know... What he wore all the time. He yeah, feels, time he feels most comfortable in a suit. This, They're like, you know, here comes that sharp-dressed Mulaney guy. This works well because my topic is also a, a sharp dresser. No way. Uh, but I, I'm going to... Is it gonna Jeff be a, Goldblum? No. Oh. There's going to be a, a little bit of an Good. intro. And I'd like you to, if you guess what it is, just hold it until the end. There you is, there is, There is a portion where I'm going to mm. signal to you where you can say... Okay what you think it is. So here we go. <clears throat> so it's the mid 1900s in Hampstead, London. Pause for Caitlin to be Crenshaw. Oh, oh, in Hampstead, sirs. Oh, I can never go to Hampstead, sirs. In Hampstead, I'm considered farming, sirs. <laughs> it's, it's very legal, not only legal, but encouraged to take a broom. If you see Crenshaw in Hampstead, <laughs> you are encouraged to take up a, a broom and... And just flog me over the noggin. They call it flogging the noggin over there. <laughs> that was way more in depth than I was anticipating. And you're little Martin Hanford. Uh, you're a peculiar boy who keeps mostly to himself, an only child to already divorced parents. Uh, pause for Caitlin to be Martin Hanford, but it's really just her Crenshaw character. Oh, I'm Martin Hanford. Hanford from Hampshire. What's it called again? <laughs> Hampstead. I'm Martin Hanford from Hampstead, and I love ham sandwiches. <laughs> So as a child, uh, you really weren't interested in socializing with the other local children, going outside and playing little British children games. Instead, you would draw pictures. A pause for Josh to burp. I don't have one. I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> it was, it was worth the shot. It was worth a shot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Didn't uh, happen. As a child, you were also interested in playing with little toy soldiers, and you would combine your two loves like a sitcom character bringing two dates to the same restaurant. <laughs> By drawing your toy soldiers. At age four, you are already big into drawing crowds of toy soldiers and drawing crowds in general. Because when you're a little kid, what do you love? Crowds. Crowds. Just the idea of them. Mm -hmm. And as a young adult, you you get a soul-crushing job at an insurance office just so you can put yourself through art college. You just got to draw more crowds. People got to see your crowds. After three years at Crusader Insurance Company, you enroll at the University for the Creative Arts in Maidstone, Kent, which is a British place. After graduating, you work as a freelance artist specializing in, you guessed it, crowds. So it's the 80s now. 
and you work for Walker Books, a British book publisher. <gasps> you were never the kind to try and stand out amongst a crowd. You'll find no twirls or finger guns in this story. You'd rather keep to yourself and stay unnoticed, so you mostly just try to blend in at your job by doing what everyone else was doing in the 80s. You were car surfing outside the office, kicking a koosh ball with one jelly shoe and a hacky sack with the other, with your crimped mullet and your shoulder pads and your parachute pants all blowing in the wind. 19 slap bracelets up your arm. <laughs> oh, I loved slap bracelets. There's a yo-yo swinging from your penis. <laughs> You're full incognito. One day at the office, you're in your tiny cubicle and your boss comes over to see the, prog the progress you're making on your illustrations. Oh, gee willikers, you think to yourself while you scramble to hide your drawings of crowds, the very same thing you tried all your life to blend into because you're a sad, lonely nerd who likes to draw. Hanford, your boss ejaculates upon reaching your cubicle. You, what? <laughs> you're startled and spill your coffee all over your neon leg warmers. Papers flying everywhere. Show me what you've been working on. Yes, sir. You whimper while you pick up your drawings off the floor. You hand him a crowd drawing. What in the dick is this? He ejaculates almost immediately. I, 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 like, crowd sir what the balls am i supposed to do with these your boss ejaculates little old martin hanford can't stop drawing crowds you'll never amount to anything hanford you're nothing you're more insignificant than you're one of your little nameless characters in your crowds at least they don't make me want to punch through my own dick he ejaculates but then his face changes and an idea seems to come over him then it hits him he ejaculates. Actually, he says, these drawings aren't half bad. Hey, yeah, haha, <laughs> these are pretty great. But you know what would make them even better, buddy old pal? If you added in a character amongst the crowd with peculiar features that gave a crowd a focal point, something to look for. I'm so glad we're friends. Your boss leaves. You immediately throw up over the stress. You clean yourself up. You get to work trying to come up with some characters to add your drawings to please your scary boss. You come up with some good ones, a dog, a wizard, a nerdy bespectacled girl who you probably have sexual fantasies about, an evil man who probably represents your boss, but you really strike gold when you come up with the protagonist of the group, a tall slender man with jeans, glasses, a goofy smile, and a red and white hat to match his red and white striped shirt named Carmen Sandiego. What what are you talking about? So Josh is wrong. What did you say? I'm Waldo. 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 Uh, no, it's not Waldo. It's Where is Waldo? It's Wally, actually. Oh Jesus! Shit. So no points for any of you. Where's Wally is a British children's puzzle book created by English illustrator Martin Hanford. The books consist of double-page drawings of large, dense crowds and objects, each one featuring a hidden character named Wally that readers are tasked with finding. So why uh, is that still the same? Yeah. Still to this day. Yeah. So I'm sure you'll so address. What the hell is where's Waldo? I'm yeah. <laughs> what have My we been saying to this whole time? It's so. Uh, is it in, like a Berenstain Bears situation? Oh God, no, no, not. no, no. It's in North America, they change the name from Wally oh. to Waldo. But in most of the world, it's where's because Wally. It's Wally. Yeah, and originally it's where's Wally. I wonder why they would change that just for the U.S. Could not find a reason. Guess that's the biggest difference between British English and American English. Yeah. Have you heard about Where's Willy? <laughs> that's where you have to find me, Willy. I don't. I do not want to hear about that. <laughs> so uh, the first Where's Wally book was published on September twenty first. <laughs> 
1987 by Walker Books in the UK and by Little Brown and Company in the United States before being taken over by Candlewick Press. Oh, I love Candlewick. That's uh, yeah, it's Walker, Walker Books, American subsidiary publishing company. The books became extremely popular pretty quickly and were localized for many different regions, which was very easy to do because they were little to no words at all. By the early 1990s, the books were so popular that they spawned a cartoon, a weekly comic strip, and a number of negatively received video games on early home consoles, where you you just had to find Wally. And they're made by Bethesda, too, which is funny. Big oof. Yeah. So, Where's Wally is actually a certain kind of picture book called uh, Wimmel Bilderbuch, which translates from German to Teeming Picture Book. And uh, these are books that are wordless and feature large gatefold drawings that are densely packed with things to look at. Mm. And Where's Wally was far from the first Wimmel Bilderbuch, but the format gained a lot of popularity because of Wally. And um, there were a lot of I- imitators. I couldn't find any specific ones that were worth noting. But. Yeah, I've definitely seen them, but I yeah, I couldn't tell yeah. you one of them. Is a. Uh... Never mind. I have another example of a Vim to build a book or whatever it is. Um, I spy. That's that's what I thought of too. I don't think that technically counts because it has words on each page. Ah, uh, Th- this is like meant to be just a picture that you look at. Okay, then I don't think the one that I was going to say counts either. Well, what, what was it? Was it? It's called uh, the Eleventh Hour by Graham. Huh. The, the name Graham is involved. It's either the first <laughs> name or it's the last name. Fair, fair. I can't remember any of his other names. And it was very fun because you had to like, the premise was a bunch of animals have a birthday party and they're all there. But then the someone steals all the food or the cake or some shit. And wow, then like, you really have to familiar. find out, you have to find out which animal it is. And you have to inspect all of the pictures really closely to figure out who it was. That and does I, sound fun. I couldn't hmm. ever figure it out when I was little. So I looked up the answer in the back, like, because it's there. And then I thought to myself, someday I'll forget the answer and be able to read this book and solve it again when I'm older and smarter. And I've never been able to forget the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Is that uh, count as a... The the cobra effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. You know what? I'm giving her a point for that. That's great. Thanks. Bringing it home. So it is reported to take Hanford up to eight weeks to finish a drawing for a book, which is done to scale of the actual pages in the book. And he almost always adds in Wally last. Each image usually contains about 300 to 500 figures on average, though as time has gone on, whereas Wally books have gotten more and more difficult. Wally started out on average around 0.99 square centimeters big, but this was reduced to 0.8 square centimeters in the second book, 0.33 square centimeters in the third book. Oh, and so he's always the same in every picture in in a book. Uh, he looks. Well, you mean like the same size? Yeah. About yeah. Huh. From the fourth book onward, he was somewhere between 0.2 and 0.17 square centimeters. Wow. Yeah. So pretty tiny. And uh, more characters have also... Wait, wait, hold on. If the trend continues and then he goes underwater, (laughs) do you know what he will be? Hydroscopic. Yeah, no. (laughs) He'll be hydroscopic. (laughs) 
So more characters have also been added around Wally to make it more difficult over time. In the first book, there are 225 characters on the first page compared to the first page of the most recent book, which had 850 characters on the first page. Damn. Does this guy still hand draw all this shit? Yeah. Yeah, it's all yeah, it's all hand drawn. No, he has to be dead. No, no, he's not. This he's was been like, alive for a really long time. This is like the nineteen eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. He was born he was born in like nineteen fifty six or something like that. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> he's like, I mixed it up with something else. I'm he's sorry. like your parents' age. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sorry. That's so fucking cool though to be to do be doing something like that, where it's like this dude was just really good at doing one artistic thing and he yeah. just was like that's my career. Yeah, yeah. that is cool to and like just have known your calling. I just he's, can't he's imagine being a child too. and being I'm, like, this is my favorite thing to do. Oh, yeah. Someday I'll make money doing this because we all have those things, right? Yeah. And he just did it. And he just is doing that. Drawing still. crowds. It's fucking crazy. So yeah, so the most recent book had 850 characters on the first page. Speaking of characters, I want to get into them a little bit. So without further ado, the oh! heavy hitters. Yeah. <laughs> First up, you got Wally, named Waldo in the United States and Canada. Wally is described as a world traveler and time travel aficionado. He started off as a lonely traveler, but as time went on, he has been joined by a number of friends, including Wilma, Wally's friend who dresses exactly the same as him but is female because of quality, who is for some reason replaced by her twin sister Wenda at some point in the series, <laughs> with no explanation as to why or what happened to Wilma. I know. It was um, David Miscavige. <laughs> uh, where am I? Then you got Woof, Wally's dog. He used to be Wenda's dog, but people don't care about where's Wally lore, as evidenced by me not knowing much about any of these characters or being able to find anything about them. So he instead is just called Wally's dog to avoid confusion. He also wears a red and white hat, red and white shirt, and glasses, because of course he does. Then there's Wally's nemesis, Oddlaw, which is Waldo, spelled backwards. He looks exactly like Wally, except his clothes are yellow and black instead of red and white and he has a mustache interestingly enough he is still called Oddlaw in the original British publications even though his name comes from Waldo and not Wally we are told quote his bad deeds are many but we never actually see him doing anything bad in any of the books then you have wizard Whitebeard, a wizard with a long and white beard who is there also then there's the ominously named Wally watchers who are Wally's devoted fan club who follow him around in his drawings and dress exactly the same as him, making it more difficult to find the real Wally. So that's why that is. Yeah. They yeah. just love him and they they want to be around him and dress like him I and can't probably there's lore for this. When I was Wally little sleeps. when I was little and it would tell you like all of those other characters to find, I would be like that that's bullshit. That's not Waldo. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm, on, I'm only finding Waldo. <laughs> I was like, they, these others aren't like the main objective. They're Wally watchers. They're, yeah. they're meant to, to throw you off the scent. So there are seven primary Where's Wally books outside of compilation books, and they are as follows 1987's Where's Wally, 1988's Where's Wally Now, 1989's Where's Wally The Fantastic Journey, 1993's Where's Wally in Hollywood. Uh, I mean, don't you think it was a huge missed opportunity to not say Wallywood? 
point for Caitlin. Uh, 1997's Where's Wally the Wonder Book. 2006 saw the release of Where's Wally the Great Picture Hunt. And 2009 was the most recent original Where's Wally book, Where's Wally the Incredible Paper Chase. I believe the reason that that was the last one is because in 2007, Hanford sold the rights to Where's Wally to Entertainment Rights Group, the world's largest independent owner of children's brands in general. That's which is so a, weirdly a creepy that's, thing to be yeah. the Dys- largest owner. That's of. dystopic <laughs> yeah, as I don't fuck. Like that. Yeah. Such a weird name for a thing. Yeah, so they own Where's Wally now, and he made 2.5 million pounds. In this sale, which was about 5.25 million American dollars at the time. Not uh, bad. Or, or Waldo dollars, as we call them here in the States. Okay. Instead of, instead of Wally dollars. Do you know what the porn name of it is? Where's Willie? Where's Waldildo? Oh. <laughs> no points. So just I just have a few quick fun facts to end the segment. You can search for Wally and all his previously mentioned friends on Google Maps if you're bored, and they're all hidden somewhere in the world. Oh, oh. that's cool. Yeah. In, uh, in 2009, 1,052 students, alumni, faculty, and members of the community at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey, got the Guinness World Record for the largest gathering of people dressed as Wally. This record was broken in 2011 when 3,872 people dressed as Wally in Marion Square in Dublin. And that is the current record. So we can. Let's top it. We can get started. Yeah. Cut to the montage. <laughs> and uh, finally, in 2015, computer scientist Randall Olson computed the optimal search path to find Wally in any given Where's Wally drawing after analyzing each and every drawing. Oh, I remember seeing that. When yeah, it, went viral. it gives you it gives you the best starting point and uh, a path going to each location he's most likely to appear, as well as locations where he will never appear. <laughs> Scientifically, there are places where you can just forget about it. Wow. Huh. <laughs> Top left of the page, he's never there. Never. Don't even bother. Rip it off. <laughs> All right, we're back for the end. This is the end, everyone. Thanks for riding along. Thanks to Chris. Thanks to Drippy. Thanks to Jeremiah. We got points. There are points here. Points uh, abound. Actually, yeah, there are quite a quite a number of points. We were point heavy this round. We were point turgid this we were, round. Uh, dripping with points. Yes, I don't we think were, I got very many points, y'all. We were flaccid with points. Uh, that doesn't oh, even no. really make sense. That's not the right no, it kind of does because you know you're, you're being weighed down with the yeah. points. My points are limp. And like, if you were a penis and you were being weighed down. You'd be flaccid. That's not necessarily true, but let's go. Let's move on. All right. So moving on. Uh, in last place, Belgium with minus one because of their handling of the Free Congo state. Of course. Uh, in fifth place, Steve, Caitlin's dad. Oh, nice. He's got a point. Fourth place, Joel. Yep. Three points. Pretty good though. No. A tie for second, I guess. Chris and myself. Hmm. I'm Josh. Oh, yeah. We got five points. Nice. Caitlin, again, first place. Yeah. Again. I'm here. I'm here. With six points. Uh-oh. That's the same score you got last time. No, no. <laughs> I did it again. I don't know what we do about that. No, no. I don't 
don't remember. Well, I think that's a job for future Caitlin to figure out. We'll figure it out. Sure will. Well, what are we doing next week, y'all? Uh, next week we're gonna. I'm gonna. Next week I'm gonna talk about battery acid pancake batter. Well, I'm and, gonna. And you, you better believe that batteries, that battery batter is better <laughs> <laughs> than Antrimimus. Well very, very good. Uh, I'm gonna talk about free riding reindeer. Nuts. I'm gonna talk about nuts. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about p- pony boys. <laughs> there are m- most people only know about the one that stayed gold, but there are multiple ones, and I'm gonna t- I'm, I've rooted every single one of them out, and I'm gonna I'm gonna whistle blow. <laughs> Next week's episode is called Whistle Blow the Pony Boys. <laughs> Uh, next, time next time on, on one, one out I'm gonna say the version that I heard first first and mm. then I'll I'll say the other version so the first version that I heard <laughs> Why are there two versions? You'll hear why in a second. So the first version is is. what's what's the difference between peanut butter and jam? Oh, I don't don't know this one. I know the next one probably. Hmm. I can't peanut butter my dick into your ass. Oh, (laughs) Oh, that was the one I knew. That's good. So that doesn't, but that one doesn't make any fucking sense because there are many obvious differences between peanut butter and jam. what's the one difference (laughs) so that was told to me incorrectly (laughs) in case you couldn't tell so the real version is what's the difference between jelly and jam i can't jelly my dick into your ass yeah that one's better neither are that bad honestly yeah it's just it implies sodomy great so that's that's the that's the bit love it so experts (laughs) 